Thank you very much, you guys. <clears throat> Appreciate that. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We're in Psalm chapter 15. If you'd like to turn your Bible there, I'd appreciate that. Psalm chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can certainly grab one out of the pew rack in front of you and uh, use that and follow along. We're continuing through the Psalms this summer, and we'll do that for a few more weeks. Um, next week, I know Ryan mentioned it a little while ago, and just to, to reemphasize, uh, one service next week, one Celebration Sunday. It's Labor Day weekend, so we will meet here at 10.30 in the morning. Uh, there's no Sunday school before that, and then following that service, we will have a potluck afterwards, um, and the potluck part of it is you bring your favorite side dish, uh, salad, whatever it might be, your dessert. Uh, we'll provide the tri-tip and chicken for the main course, okay? Uh, and then during the service, it'll be a family-friendly service. Uh, we'll have all the kids involved here as a part of it. We'll kind of break it up like we normally do with elements of preaching and singing and praying and preaching and kids' corners, and we'll just kind of mix it all up so it, it has lots of different elements and keeps the attention of the kids at least. And, and we'd love to have them here as well. So that'll be happening next Sunday. Remember, one service at what time? 10.30, 10.30. Um, also, baptisms at the lake. Uh, Ryan mentioned that. That's coming up. September 8th, and uh, it was interesting this week, I got to meet with uh, one of our children in our church. I think she's about 10 or 11 years old. And, you know, typically how those meetings go, <coughs> you, you, don't, you don't know if they quite grasp their, uh, the depth of the gospel or salvation or if they've even made a profession of faith in Christ yet, uh, or if they know what baptism means. And, you know, you a lot, half hour, 45 minutes for those meetings, sometimes up to an hour, you know, with parents there and, and chatting. And uh, I, this young girl came in, and uh, I, I just asked her some simple open-ended questions, and she had some awesome answers, great answers. I have no doubt about her profession of faith in Christ. Uh, no doubt about the, the fact that she loves Jesus and he loves her and that she is super excited and ready to, to publicly follow him in obedience and be baptized. So I know we have at least one young girl going to be baptized. Uh, I think we have a couple of those who are interested in that. If you are still interested, we need to meet this week and talk and finalize uh, this week or next some of those details. But for the rest of the church, uh, if you're not getting baptized, you've already been baptized, it's opportunity for you and I to go out and support and encourage and uh, and worship God alongside of these uh, folks who are going to be baptized. So that's at 3 o'clock on the Pay Beach side of Lake Siskiyou. Uh, I think they raised the prices to 2 bucks a person now. Is that right? I know. I know. They doubled the price, right? Big spenders. But uh, just be aware of that, and we'll meet out there at 3 o'clock, kind of on the, on the far left side of the beach uh, together, okay? That's on the 8th. <clears throat> the other thing is that we are looking at starting up groups this fall. Uh, groups are places for you and I to grow in community with other believers. Uh, that could be a Sunday school class uh, that's, that's already started and, and it'll be ongoing, uh, or a home group somewhere, uh, somewhere in the area, maybe in, in Chastina or Weed or Dunsmuir, McLeod, Mount Shasta. We're trying to get groups uh, going. And I, I met with many of you who uh, are potential leaders and many of our leaders, and whether you're a Sunday school or a small group leader. But we need to hear back from you, maybe talk to me or Alistair today. Uh, we need to make sure we know the day and time, the location you're going to be meeting, so we can get that information going and get that out to everybody else uh, as, as when they start. Okay? That's the little stuff, the little little nuggets. Uh, I, I've, I've missed you a lot. I've, uh, this is, I've actually been gone three Sundays from the pulpit. Um, one of those was a vacation with my family. We went to Bandon and had a great time with, uh, with the church over there as well. And uh, Alistair actually covered that week. Um, and then the next week we got back, I actually got sick and was sick. The first Sunday, I was, bum I was bummed. It was the first Sunday that I'd ever been sick enough to actually have to call somebody to preach. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to, but I had to. And uh, Hoyt, great job. Uh, Hoyt filled in wonderfully on about an hour and a half notice, so that was good. But this sermon was prepared and ready to go, and that's where we left off in Psalm 15. Uh, of course, last week we were in Nashville at a, at a conference for worship leaders and pastors. 
uh, to just talk about worship and congregational singing. So a lot of inspiration there. And Larry, uh, Larry Schleif covered uh, the pulpit last week. Appreciate him as well, and he did a great job. But this week we're back in Psalms uh, chapter 15, and we're going we're gonna to read that together. I'll pray, and we'll read that together, and then we'll start to break that down, okay? Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you are such a great God, and uh, as we gather together, we gather here not because we have it all together, not because we know uh, all the great wonders of truth, but God, because you are truth, and that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and we gather to worship you, and we gather to glean from you. We gather to humble ourselves before you, God, to empty ourselves of anything that uh, is, as, is of us or the world or some different idea. God, and we want to cling to you and your truth. So, God, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open today to receive your truth. God, I pray that you would add or delete from, from what I have to say, God, and uh, God, that you would teach us all from your word. God, that we, we would desire not only humility, we would desire growth and to grow and to be conformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. We want to be more like him. So we thank you for that. We give this day to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Psalms, chapter 15, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to read the entire thing together, and then we'll kind of start breaking that apart. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, who honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Today we're, we're going to be breaking this down, and, and today the sermon title is Traits of the Righteous. And, and I want to set the table with that a little bit. Keep your ribbon here at Psalm 15. We'll come back and break it apart. But let's turn, turn with me, if you would, to, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I want to kind of set the stage and help us understand something, because th this is a psalm that starts with a question. And the question is, who, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? And it's an, I think it's an important question for us to ask, and then it's a very important question for us to find the answer to that. But as we read this psalm, what we're going to start to see, if we just didn't have a, a harmonization of Scripture and understand what the Lord's requirement is, we would think that he is going to set us up with a, bunch of, a list of a bunch of rules that if we would do these things, we would be in. But we need to understand it goes deeper than that. So understand this dwelling part. He says, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? There's two, two kind of questions into one there. Who can dwell in your tent? There's a preparation that the psalmist makes in his heart saying, who can actually approach God Almighty in the tabernacle and worship Him adequately? Who can do that? And that's a great question because, you know, you and I come on a Sunday morning or in a gathering, and we come wondering and longing, uh, can our worship be acceptable to God? The next part of the question says, who can live on your holy mountain? And this is more of a, a relaxed state. There's a, there's a very formal state in the first request, who can dwell in your sanctuary, your tent. The next one is, who can live on your holy mountain? Who can actually approach you, God, and, and sit with you in your presence and live there? Who can do that? And that, So there's a relaxed part of it, and there's a really formal part of it. Either way, we're asking the question, can I be good enough? Am I good enough? Or what makes me good enough to stand there? Well, Psalm chapter 5, before we get to Matthew 5, it says this, we, and we covered this last summer. It says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil cannot dwell with you. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. So who can dwell? Well, not the evil, not the wicked. 
And that raises a problem. Because if we look at Scripture and we adequately allow God to judge us, we know that all of us are wicked and evil in our hearts. That every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's nothing you or I can do to erase that sin on our own. Amen? We know that. There's nothing we can do. So what, who can dwell there? What, who, what makes us adequate? And it's certainly not the things that follow in Psalm 15. It's something else. So we're in, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 5 together. And then we'll go back to Psalm 15 and see what that, what that means, what, what it's saying to us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I'm going to read the, it's as part of the Beatitudes, right? It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I know it's probably something I overuse, but in this last season of my life, maybe two, three years or four years, I started teaching the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I think the summer before Stan retired. I taught it during sun, uh, summer of Sunday nights. We had uh, Sunday night Bible study right here in the sanctuary. And I started going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I taught it then. And as I, as I, I learned it and as I unpacked it and God, God, God showed us what it meant, it just has resounded in, in my heart as, as the gospel in present view. So let's, let's listen along and see what this says. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's stop there for a minute. We'll, we'll cover the next ones in a minute. But if you look at this, how, how it progresses, this to me is a progression of adequate humility before the Father. Look what it starts with. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. So now we talk about a dwelling place. We've asked that question about what's this dwelling place? Who can dwell with God? And here we're talking about a dwelling of heaven and that, that there's someone that's poor in spirit can dwell there. So what is actually happening here? Here's what, here's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means that you and I have come to a place in our lives where we understand the depth of depravity within us. That we understand that we are sinful and separated from God. And there, there's nothing we can do to achieve that unity with God on our own at all. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit because I know how separated I am from a holy, pure, loving God by my own sin. Then it goes on. The progression continues. What happens after I am poor in spirit? Well, it says, blessed are those who what? Who mourn. When I am, and there's a choice here. After this first verse or the third verse, we're poor in spirit. We have a choice. We can let that sorrow and that grief over our own sin move us to repentance. Or we can say, you know what? I'm bad, but so is everybody else. There's nothing I can do about it. I'll go in my own way. That would be unwise. It goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. So being poor in spirit, understanding how separated from God I am, should drive me to a place of absolute weeping before God because of my sin and my position with God. That there's nothing I can do. He, I am absolutely separated from God, and I should weep and mourn over that fact. Well, that continues to lead us to something. That, that basically says, when, I, when I'm mourning, I'm sitting before God. I'm like, God, I've got nothing. I'm, I'm totally worthless. I know I'm created in your image, and there's value because I'm created in your image, but because of my sin, I'm separated from you, and nothing I can bring to you, you will accept. And it goes on. It says, not only are we poor in spirit and we mourn, that mourning will lead us to this ultimate meekness or this emptiness. It says, blessed are those who are humble, or blessed are the humble. So the humble, this, this word is meek, it's empty. Blessed are those who come to God, poor in spirit, mourning, weeping over their sin, and absolutely empty with nothing brought with them, saying, God, I'm here with all my baggage, please take me as I am with all this stuff. 
He says, no, you, you've got to empty yourself. You, there's nothing I can accept. So we come absolutely empty. It's like a fast. When you, when you fast or when you're, you're hungry, you skip a meal, and you get really hungry, right? You're, there's a, it's like a pit inside of emptiness, and you need to, need to do what with it? You need to feed it. You need to fill it. Well, this spiritual emptiness is even stronger, so it goes into that place of meekness and humility where we're absolutely empty, and then it goes in, it says in verse 6, blessed are those, because they're, because they're empty, what happens? Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, right? They hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They'll be filled. You, you see, here's our word, right? Character traits or traits of righteousness. Here it is right here, the righteous. We get righteousness. We need to be filled with righteousness. But that righteousness does not come from us. It comes when we empty ourselves of us before a God who is the ultimate treasure we could ever have. And he says, you need me more than anything else. Get rid of everything else and come to me. And we come before him in that way and we are absolutely empty and destitute and, and totally hungry for something that we could never attain on our own. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for his righteousness, guess what happens? He gives it to us. He gives it to us. That's what faith in Christ is. It's coming before God saying, I know I'm sinful, I know I'm separated from you, and I weep over that, that there's nothing I can do to bring me back into a relationship with you. You've done all the work, and I come to you totally empty, not with any preconceived notion or different thought or a worldly view or a, a way that I thought was right. I come with nothing, expecting everything from you, that you will become my everything. I'm so hungry, in fact, I'm hungry and thirsting for your righteousness, a righteousness that I can only get from you, not from anything I can do. And guess what? God says, thanks for being hungry. I'm glad you're hungry. Here you go. Have your fill. And he gives us his righteousness. Scripture says that we are imputed with his righteousness, that he clothes us in his righteousness. Let's go on. Let's see what happens after that. Let's see what the fruit, the fruit of his righteousness is. Verse 7. There's a change here, right? Because of righteousness, there's a fruit of God that's in us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness. Not yours, God's. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You see that dwelling place there? Who may dwell? It's the righteous. Those who are righteous because of Jesus, because of what he has done for them. He goes into verse 11. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. You see this? The attribute of righteousness on you and I is not from us. It's from Jesus. God gets the credit. And when people persecute us, they persecute us because of him and his righteousness. Uh, they say false kinds of evil against you because of him, because of me, he says. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. The righteous have a dwelling place and a reward that is great in heaven. Who may dwell? What's the answer? The righteous may dwell in the house of the Lord. So we go back. Let's go back to the psalm. We're going we're gonna to break this down. That the question is, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? And what we're finding is the righteous, those who have a righteousness that's not their own, those who have a righteousness that is from Jesus Christ alone may dwell on his mountain and in his house. That's who may dwell there. So what we see following this, the song, the song goes on to answer the question, but it should be noted that given the depth of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel, which is 
Christ in us, which is Christ's righteousness imputed to us, not our earnings, not anything we could take credit for. It's God's pursuit and salvation of lost sinners. By the way, what does it mean to be a lost sinner? It means that I thought I had my way, or a way, and it was wrong. I was lost, and I found the way, which is Jesus Christ. The answer is not meant as a means to an end. So as, as the psalmist writes the next verses in, in, in chapter 15, he's not saying this is the person that if they do this, you'll be able to dwell. It's not a means to an end. It's, it's not prescriptive of what must be done. Rather, it is descriptive of the person who has forever been changed by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's descriptive. So for you and I, it becomes a test. For everyone in this room, it's a test. Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Because you could say, who can dwell there? Here's the list. Let's check it off and look how good I am. That would be an error to the harmonization of Scripture. But for the rest of us who know that we have to have Christ-imputed righteousness upon ourselves, we still might go to the place to, to say, well, I, my, the fruit of my life, the fruit of God in me is not, not really growing much, and I'm not showing a lot of these traits. The righteous, the traits of the righteous are these things. You and I should be growing in these things, hoping to arrive someday full and complete, lacking nothing before Jesus. But we don't settle for, eh, whatever. Maybe we'll get there one day. We strive and desire to be rooted on Him that's a firm foundation, abiding in Christ who is the, the vine, and He will produce a fruit in us. So we are now going to see the fruit that God produces as traits in the, in the uh, in traits and character of the righteous, right? Let's look at number one, the first trait of the righteous. Now, by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just the list we find from Psalm 15. There's more in Scripture to see the fruit that's produced. But here's what we see in Psalm 15. Number one, they have strong character. The traits of the righteous, they have strong character. It says, the one who lives blamelessly. So ask the question, and now it starts to answer the question. Who may dwell? And we know it's the righteous, and here's what the righteous look like. They're the one who live blamelessly. They practice righteousness and acknowledge the truth in his heart. They have strong character. Now, there's three things mentioned there, and I want to describe these three things in a little more depth for us. The first one says they live blamelessly. The word broken down and, and into its meaning means wholeheartedly. They, they, they're wholeheartedly or they're sound. They have an understanding of from the heart what is right. This is what's right. This is, this is how I'm going to live and I, I don't want to put a pretense on, I'm just going to go through the motions. It actually, I actually believe it in my heart that this is right and real. I'm going to move that way. It's not hypocritical. So they don't, don't say one thing and do another. They actually practice both. And then in the middle of that, it says they practice righteousness. So they, they live blamelessly, then they practice righteousness. And what that means is that they do what is right. They live morally. Not morally to what they feel is moral, to what God feels is moral. Now here's the issue with that. You can practice righteousness without being righteous. You understand? I can, I can follow a set of guidelines. I can, I can, you can list those out and say, yeah, I'm going to live that way and really have no saving faith in Christ. It's not coming from inside. It's just I, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to portray morality. I think it's a good idea. That's why it's, it's kind of sandwiched here between blameless and then knowing the truth in your heart, acknowledging the truth in your heart. So that blamelessness is saying, it's actually my desire. In me is my desire to actually obey and live in a way that pleases God. So there's a desire there. Right? I want you to think about this like as you grew up or even now, maybe your, your convictions are changing. There's a, there should be a desire in us to live blamelessly, a desire in us to live wholeheartedly for Christ. 
wholeheartedly embracing the truth, like it's a desire. Then, then we see that we practice righteousness. We actually obey. And, and that's hard because we don't always want to, do we? We don't always like to obey. We don't always want to obey. But God's calling us to obedience. And the, the trait of the righteous is someone who practices righteousness. Who decides, you know what, I may not totally get my mind wrapped around it or my heart wrapped around it fully, but he says it and I'm going to follow it. I'm going to obey it. This is like children, right? My children, for the most part, want to live blamelessly. They, they want to, for the most part, they want to please their, mo- their mother and I. They, they, Daddy, I want to please you. They, they may not like the means by which I lay out to please me. They may not agree with what I've asked them to do, but they want to please. So they're going to try. But that goes into the next part that's really important to, to round out this, this character sandwich. It's the one who acknowledges the truth in his heart. This is a little deeper than just practicing uh, righteousness or, or even living blamelessly. Practicing truth or acknowledging truth in your heart is a step beyond those two things. It's certainly a step beyond morality, and it's another step beyond just desiring to live blamelessly. This word, to acknowledge truth in their heart, it, it's, it's a person who is sure or convinced about their actions being in line with God's order of things. So there's a desire on my part in one, in one hand, the first part, blameless. I desire to live that way. I don't know if I fully wrap my heart around it yet, but I desire it. So I'm going to live, I'm going to practice righteousness. But it goes a step further. Those, the trait of the righteous, the strength of character they have, is a person who actually wraps their heart around it, connects their mind with their heart, with what God says, and has embraced that lifestyle as a conviction, that they're sure about it. That's not just like, I don't know why I'm going to do it. It's like, no, I know why, and it is, I am sold, I am all in. This is how I'm going to live. It's a character trait of the righteous, that we would, we would surrender and submit ourselves to God's authority. That wouldn't be our own authority, that we wouldn't just want to rest in practicing righteousness, that we would want to desire it, practice it, and that we would embrace it in our heart as our conviction, that that is the way we're going to live, and that's the strength of character that we have. That what we confess in our lives lines up with our heart. It's not just lip service. Psalm chapter 12, we read this a couple weeks ago. David says, help, Lord, because no faithful one remains. Talking about people who just give lip service. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. They lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. So you see, that's, that's the disconnect. We can, I can say smooth things to you. I can, I can give you the line you want to hear. But if it's disconnected here, there's no faithfulness there. There's no loyalty there. Uh, they've disappeared. God's saying that's not how it should be with you and I, who are the righteous because of Christ. Isaiah chapter 29, the, the Lord says this in verse 13. He says, the, the people approach me with their speeches. Now, I like this, the, the approach. Remember our question, who may dwell in the house of the Lord, right? Who may sit on his holy mountain? That same idea, who may approach God? So God says, these people, they approach me with their speeches, and they honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. How? How does a person's heart get far from God? Well, it says the next thing, their hearts are far from me, and their human rules direct the worship of me. How are our hearts far from God? Because human rules or tradition or human ideas that flatter us become what we embrace. God says, you've got to lose that. You've got to let go of those, those worldly things and embrace me from a 
from a spirit in your heart that says, I want that no matter what happens. So the question is, how's your character? If, we're, if this is an outward evidence of what Christ has done, what the, the righteousness he has imputed on us, how's your character? How's my character? Is it a character that you feel could stand up and be acceptable dwelling with God? It's his righteousness. But has his righteousness moved you to a place of character that's strong? Number two, next trait of the righteous, their lips are restrained. Their lips are restrained. Look at verse 3 of chapter 15. goes on answering the question. One who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. So let's talk about that, the friend and the neighbor. We're called to love, right? Love God and love others. And this, this actually is talking about not just the people you like, not just your actual friend or your actual physical neighbor. It's talking about any other person. Any other person that we would not slander with our tongue, any other person. Here's what this, let's break down this word slander because it's really important for us to understand what, what we're talking about. Slander is a, an active, an active thing that we would go about trying to discredit and trying to ruin and trying to cause harm to another person. Leviticus 19.16 says something about this. It says, do not go about, there's the word, to go about. Like I've set my mission and my heart to do this. I'm, no, do not go about spreading slander, right? It's active among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord, he says. So there's this harm and, and, and there's this discrediting happening, har harming your neighbor's life or jeopardizing your neighbor's life. We, what we speak has the power to bring life or to bring death, to bring ruin. It's so important for us to understand. And the character traits of someone who is righteous, who can dwell before God, is not someone who goes about slandering other people in order to ruin them and discredit them and defame them. That's not what we do. We certainly don't do that to each other, to our friends, to our neighbors. We do not go about slandering. If there's a conversation to be had, there's a conversation to be had. But we don't, we don't go about trying to ruin. There's, there's kind of one of those things that, that happens. We, we, doubt begins to be cast about someone's character. And doubt could come up many ways. Maybe you heard gossip or you saw something or you overheard them say something, whatever it might have been. Doubt has crept in. And what slanderers like to do and gossips like to do is they like to take doubt, turn it into actually fact so people can really doubt, and then they spread that doubt so everyone else doubts as well. That's not bringing life with our tongue. What we ought to be doing is giving maybe the benefit of the doubt instead of doubting. You know, I would love it when people hear what I say and, and maybe it's a little weird or off and, and someone says, oh, I, 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 that guy, well, maybe give me the benefit of the doubt. Maybe come, come talk to me. Let's have a conversation about that. Let's clean it up. Wouldn't you love that reciprocated to you? That someone might give you the benefit of the doubt instead of just doubt? Those who want to grab on to doubt are usually those who will take that doubt and do something poor with it. How? We, now, here's the deal. We can and should <coughs> love one another well enough that we don't know. We don't slander to harm you and ruin your life and bring death, that we actually bring about words of life to one another. Uh, there's a proverb here, 11:13. It says, A gossip goes around revealing a secret, but a trustworthy person keeps confidence. A trustworthy person keeps a confidence. In Proverbs chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, it says this, the mouth of the righteous. Now get this. Who are those who can dwell with God? The righteous, right? The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. 
but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Their heart is set on violence. Verse 12 in that passage says, Hatred stirs up conflicts. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Now, if we're going to adequately harmonize this with Scripture as well, it, it doesn't mean we just, well, we'll just overlook what you do and you overlook what I do. Let's let us be. It's okay. I'm okay who I am. You're okay who you It's not what we're talking about. There is a time and place for us to, to go and to, to rebuke our brother or sister, to, to meet them compassionately with love and with a word saying, listen, this is wrong. You are in error here. We do that out of love. So we love someone in that way. Love covers all offenses. We go to cover that offense with God's word and with prayer, pointing people back to Jesus, back to the word. We help discipline each other and disciple each other, and we call each other to repent of our sin. This is not the kind of love we're saying, well, it's just, it's just love, love you, I'm going to love you and let you be you. You do you, I'll do, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying love, love does not stir up conflict and conceal and harm and discredit, but love goes to discipline and direct back to Jesus and call to repentance and then offer forgiveness and lead, lead that relationship towards what? Towards restoration. That's what that should look like. There should be rest restoration in that. Their lips are restrained when it comes to harm and slander and discrediting. But they're ready. The righteous are ready to help restore relationships with their words. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Number three, the third trait of the righteous we see in this passage is that their loyalty is clear. Their loyalty is clear. This is, this is pretty hard stuff. Listen, here it is. Verse 4 of chapter 15. Who may dwell with? The one who despises the one rejected by the Lord. He's given us permission to despise, apparently. I despise them. Despise the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord. What does that mean? It's harsh. It sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Well, God says we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. We should weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn, mourn rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? But all the while, we need to pick our team is what this is talking about. This is not talking about, well, I'm going to despise someone and treat them lowly and lower than I am. I'm going to just treat them horribly. That's not what it's saying. It's, here's what it's saying. It's saying that I don't, I'm not going to compare, but rather I'm going to voice my vote. I'm going to make my vote loud and clear. I'm going to take a stand. And for you and I, that means with our families. It means with our friends, maybe our spouse, maybe your kids, or maybe your parents. It means with your coworkers or people in your school. It means all of those different places, right? That we have to take a stand. Too many of us, too many of the righteous who are longing to dwell with God sit on a fence and do nothing. You know, we have a great privilege in this, in this nation. If you're a citizen of this nation, you and I have an opportunity to voice, take a stand and vote. Do you understand that? And I, I get it. You know, some of us are like, oh, we live in a small area. Our votes don't count. Your vote definitely won't count if you don't cast it. I guarantee you. But it's not so much about you making a difference. It's you and I taking a stand with God. There's no one on the fence. There's no fence. Either you're standing with God or you're not. And I know that's harsh. But we have to understand that, that passivity is actually just capitulating. It's surrender. And God's like, no, take a stand here. Make your loyalty clear. Where do you stand? Do you stand with Jesus? In the book of Esther, uh, the, the bad guy in that book is Haman. 
and uh, Haman's trying to, to kill all the Jews, and, and Mordecai is onto him and doesn't like him at all, and, and is, is totally against what he's doing. And here's what it says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 2. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. It's like, oh, Haman's so great, I'm going to honor him, and let's, let's everyone bow down and give him the reverence and, and pay homage that, that he deserves. So they did. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. That's what it means to despise the one that God has rejected. It doesn't mean we need to drag him out and drag him around and beat him up. It means that we take a stand and say, I'm not doing that. That's not how I'm going to live. That's not how I'm going to speak. The world says that's okay. I say it's not because God says it's not. So you and I are to embrace God and his word and say, that's who we stand with and take a stand. How are people going to know unless we proclaim the truth of God's word? We've sat on the fence far too long and done nothing. We have gained no ground for Jesus. Gaining ground for Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to speak up. I'm going to speak about the one who has imputed righteousness to me, and I am going to take a stand with what he wants me to stand for. Turn to the book of 1 John, if you would, with me. Keep your, keep your ribbon here. 1 John, almost all the way to the end of the Bible. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and then Revelation. It's after 2nd Peter. I want us to see the, the two camps that are listed here in 1st John, and there's other places, but we'll start here. 1st John, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 15 through 17 together. We don't see a fence here, by the way. There's no fence to sit on in this passage. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. So there's one camp, the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not, here's the other camp, from the Father, the first camp, but is from the world. So we have two camps, right? One's from the Father, one is from the world. And the world with its lusts is what? Passing away. But the one who does the will of God, what? Remains forever. Who may dwell in the house of the Lord? The one who remains, the one who does the will of God. The one who's in the camp of the Father. For the things from the Father, not from the world. There are two places we can be. It's either in the world or with the Father. We have to make that choice. For you and I, that choice should be pretty easy. There's been, if there's a, we're Christ followers, there's been a righteousness that's been imputed on our lives that did not come from you or anything you could accomplish or anything in the world. It's so far from the world, it's not even funny. That we should embrace Christ in such a manner that, that shines Him to the world all around us, that we have nothing to do with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. That that is so far removed from our desire. That our desire is to do anything that comes from the Father and the will of God. Because I am righteous because of Christ and can dwell in his house. So the question is, is your loyalty clear? Is your loyalty clear? Is your loyalty clear to you? Are you even clear? Can you stand in front of the mirror and answer that question? Could you actually honestly answer from your heart that, yeah, my loyalty is clear. I, I, I'm, I'm all in. Is your loyalty clear to those around you? Do people know where you stand and what you stand for? Do people know that Jesus 
has stood for you and died for you. Finally, final question here I'll ask on this, this section is this. Is your loyalty clear to God? Because really that's the only judge that matters, right? Is your loyalty clear to God? I don't want to wear a reversible jersey. That one jersey that I can put on one day and it's, it's red and I have a certain number in my name and the team is on there, but then I, I'm getting a little uncomfortable. I'm going to switch teams. I take it off and turn it inside out, you know, those jerseys. Then you wear it, now it's blue and has a different number and a different team. That's not how we play. When Christ has made us righteous because of his son and the death on, his cro- on the cross and the power of his resurrection, he has offered righteousness to us through faith. He's not done that to let us go do whatever we want on whatever team we want. He has made us a part of his team, his family, that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Number four, the fourth trait of the righteous that we see here is that they deal honorably. They deal honorably. Look at the end of verse four. In chapter, or go back to Psalm chapter 15. The end of verse four and, and through five says, one who keeps his word, whatever the cost. Who may dwell, at the, who, what's the trait of the righteous? One who keeps their word, whatever the cost. Who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. So important for us to understand that, that the, one of the key traits of the righteous is generosity. We read that in, in Matthew chapter 5, the merciful, the peacemakers. Those are, those are merciful and generous because they've been shown mercy and generosity. Jesus died on a cross so you and I could be forgiven. He generously went there and gave everything he had. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death, so that you and I could conquer death as well and dwell with him forever. Amen? That was generous, right? That was generous. That was compassion. That was grace. That was mercy. Traits of the righteous should show that mercy and that grace in their righteousness. True worshipers are generous with what they have and they do not give in order to take advantage of others. Uh, tradition, Jewish, tr- Jewish law said that you, you loaned to someone in the family of God, you couldn't even charge interest. Now you could do something outside of that, but you, you were still to be considered kind and not to take advantage of anybody. It's generosity. It's being a, a person of your word no matter the cost. This person can't be bought, and they don't let personal gain influence their character. A passage in Matthew chapter 5, this is later on down the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. He says, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more, from, uh, more than this is from the evil one. You and I, who are, to, are the righteous of God, and are going to dwell with God, a trait of the righteousness of God is that we would be generous, that we would be honorable with our word, that we would let our yes be yes, and our no be no, that we would not use opportunities for personal gain. Instead, we would give in love. Number five, finally, final trait of the righteous that we see here is that their place, their place is assured. Number five is that their place is assured. This is so important to understand. So important for us to get that when we talk about getting a righteousness that was never ours to begin with, it's only God's to give. When we come to him in faith, He gives it to us and seals that deal so that we can dwell in the house of God. Not because you're good, not because you were even good enough, but because God was good enough for us. 
Look what it says, that last, last part of verse 15. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Never be shaken. So as you and I show the evidence of the change within us, we show the evidence of the righteousness given to us by Jesus, we show the evidence through these traits, we can understand and know that those, those evidences, those practices are fruits of what God has done in us and that you and I are secure in Him because we see Him changing our lives. We have been touched by Jesus and forever changed. We've been given a righteousness we could never achieve on our own and we have been locked into a security in Him that will never be taken away. Listen, there's so much to say in the Psalms about the stress that comes in life and the stress regarding the potential of being shaken or moved. We, we don't want to upset what's going on in our lives. If something is going good, it's like, just stay the course. Don't, don't say anything. Don't sneeze. Don't breathe. It's perfect the way it is. We, we so do not want to be uncomfortable, right? And, and what we end up doing is we, we go to places of safety, quote-unquote safety, or security, or, or places we think are refuge or strength in order to make us feel more secure and more comfortable. But in the end, most of those things disappoint. There's only one that doesn't, and that's Jesus Christ. That if you and I would run to Him as our sanctuary, to run to Him as our rock and our foundation, that if our steadfast trust would be in God, then we would never be moved. That's what we're talking about. The last passage I want us to turn to, Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 1. I want us to see this the strength we can have, this confidence, this confident strength we can have because of our trust in God, because of His righteousness. It's a great passage to, to read at home and to, to break down and study, but I'm just going to read a, a short part of it, verses 13 through 14 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. It says this, In Him, that Him is Jesus, in Him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. That's an amazing, amazing verse. I, I want, th there's a depth to this verse that has to be understood in, in just in view of the gospel in itself. The gospel says that you and I should be poor in spirit and mourn over our own sin and be, be meek and humble and empty and absolutely hungry for His righteousness and, and have faith and belief that He, what He accomplished on the cross, fulfilled everything we need for righteousness and that when we believe in Him and trust in faith that He satisfied the payment, then we are forgiven. And what Ephesians says is this, that when you heard, it says, in Him you were sealed. Does that sound wishy-washy to you? I, I have a vacuum sealer, a little like a food vacuum sealer at home. I like to marinate meats in it or, or store food. Just make sure all the air is out of it, right? What happens? I, 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 put it, I cut a bag off and I put meat in it. I, I put it up to the sealer. And what, what happens? Everything comes out of it. All the air comes out of it. And then when it's all out, it seals it. And it's not like a Ziploc, little Ziploc bag you can open. The only way to get in that bag is to ruin the seal. It is, and when it's ruined, guess what? You can't seal it again. It's done. Throw it away. Get a new bag. God seals us with His Holy Spirit. He doesn't just Ziploc us. He doesn't put a twisty tie around it to secure it. God seals us by the power of His Holy Spirit. How? When? It says, when you heard the word of truth, right? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you understood just how depraved you were and separated from God you were, 
how poor in spirit you were and that you mourned over that. You heard that and you came to him empty and humble. And it says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. When you, and it's not just a head knowledge, belief. Right? It's not just, oh, I, I understand the facts. No, when we understand the facts, really understand the facts, Scripture says that's when we can really believe. When our hearts are totally, totally open and bare before Him. And when we do that, when we believe, that's when we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And here's what verse 14 says. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession, when He's going to fully pay it all, and it's all going to be redeemed and restored. To the praise of whose glory? His glory. God seals us by His Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ and believe. He does that work. I mentioned this early service. I, I, I remember when I was a teenager and I, I wanted to get a car, right? I, I got a car gifted to me. I sold that car. I had a little money, but I needed more money because I wanted to get a bigger uh, a truck actually at that point. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't get a loan because I had no credit. So what did I do? Went to my parents. Mom, Dad, you, th- you think you might, maybe you'll loan me some money? I went to them, and, they, and guess what? They put down the down payment, or I, put, I put the down payment, they gave me the rest of the money to, and loaned it to me, and I had to pay them back, right? And there's, a, there's some kind of security in that. That was kind of refreshing, or refreshing and reassuring. There's a security with my parents that they're loving in that way and can, can carry that note, and maybe if I miss a payment, there's, a, there's some forgiveness there. But it's so, so much bigger. You go beyond that with your parents or, or someone that's going to co-sign with you on a loan. You need their co-signature on that, because otherwise you couldn't go forward. Same is true with Jesus. We have to have his signature. We have to have his, his, his seal, his deposit, in order for us to be redeemed. And guess what? He promises we do. When we have faith in him, he promises us. And it's nothing, get, get this, it's nothing that you or I could ever pay back. He's like, you know what? I got you covered. I did all the work necessary. Just, just lean in. Trust me. Believe and be saved to the praise of his glory and see that's the the best thing about this seal about this this place being assured their position being assured is it's not assured because you made it sure it's not assured because you're sure it's assured because jesus did all the work that you couldn't do amen that he accomplished everything for you and if we would believe, we would have life. And if we have life, we would have his righteousness. And if we have his righteousness, guess what? We can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. <clears throat> Fathers, we gather. We gather on the authority of your spirit and your word, and we are grateful for what you have taught us. Our desire is to throw off any any misconception or preconceived idea or notion that we would ever have and embrace your truth, the word of God, the gospel of our salvation in every way. God, I pray that as we, as we have seen who may dwell in the house of the Lord, who may sit on his mountain, is, are those who have become righteous because of faith in Christ. That we've been given a righteousness that is not our own, but God, what's, what's amazing about that is the fruit you're going to produce by the power of your spirit because of that righteousness that you will start to produce character traits in us that are, that are looking more and more like Jesus. So God, help us to forsake ourselves. Help us to, to set aside whatever we are embracing and embrace you. That we take a stand with you wherever we go. We thank you for what you have accomplished on the cross. God, we are nothing and you are everything. And we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as we close.